Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We recently studied the request for urgent prayer found in verses 18 and 19. Now in these two verses, the preacher prays. And it is a three-part prayer. It consists of a long benediction a short doxology, and an affirmation. A long benediction, a short doxology, and a one-word affirmation. Now, a benediction is literally in the Latin a well word or a good word. Benedictions are found throughout the scriptures, and they are prayers that call upon God to bless his people. They appeal to God to make good his promises in Christ Jesus to his church. And so they are invocations, invoking or calling down blessing from God to us. This is why benedictions are commonly used in worship. And they function the same way as in scripture. The benediction in this prayer is all of verse 20 and most of verse 21 ending with through Jesus Christ. Christ. That's the benediction. Next, a short doxology follows in the words, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, a doxology is a verbal expression of praise to God. They are also common, of course, in public worship. And like the benediction, it's a good word. But in this case, the good word extols or lauds or blesses God. It focuses on his glorious nature, persons, and works. And so a doxology of praise is also a part of this prayer. Finally, the prayer closes with an affirmation. The single but, as we know from previous sermons, the very meaningful word, amen. It means, so be it or may it come to pass, or even I agree with and commit myself to this. Amen affirms the reliability of God in regard to the blessing. It's a way of saying we believe God will bless us as he says he will. So amen expresses strong agreement with both the benedictory and doxological portions of the prayer. So let's look at these three parts in more detail now. First, the benediction. This benediction comes in two parts. The first is a description of the blesser, the one called upon to give the blessing. That's in verse 20. The second part, the portion of verse 21, consists in a description of the blessing that's sought. Each part is formulated in the Greek in a, really almost as a poem. 
It's got a main statement, several supporting phrases, and it's followed by a mention of Jesus. Like the rest of the book, this invocation of blessing is carefully, even beautifully constructed. So let's look at the blesser, the first half of this benediction. The blesser is named and described in verse 20. Now it's God, of course. He is the only one who should ever be invoked for blessings. Why? Because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. It doesn't ultimately come from anyone or anything else. And so his children run to God the Father, imploring him to pour out his blessing. The blessings they need, the blessings they desire. But notice that the blesser here is not God generically. He's named the God of peace. Now this is ultimately rooted in the fact that God in himself is never troubled. God knows peace to a level we do not. Fear and worry do not plague God. And there is only harmony between the persons of the Godhead. The Father and the Son never have a disagreement. The Holy Spirit is never in conflict with the Father and the Son. They only know love and peace between themselves. So God in the New Testament is described as blessed forever. That's a happy peacefulness, a peaceful joy. And he's also described as a God not of confusion, but of what? Peace. He's the God of peace. Now because he is this God in himself, he can supply peace to others. He is the source and giver of peace, and he graciously shares it with his people. Now you might say, well, why does God need to grant us peace? Well, because by nature, we are at war with God and each other. By our conception in sin, what's normally called original sin, and then by our committing actual sins, we show our defiance against God. And so our sins separate us from God. We need to be brought near him. We need, we must make peace with God. And the good news is that God has provided a way of peace. And it's described in the rest of verse 20. Now, three phase, uh, phrases here summarize how God brings peace to his children. First, let's look at the causal phrase. That's the third one, the last one in the group, where it says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. God is the God of peace to us by the blood of the eternal covenant. You see, peace is rooted in, founded on, enabled by the blood of the eternal covenant. This is the new covenant in which Jesus Christ shed his blood in the place of sinners so they could be forgiven. You see, sin's ultimate penalty is death. Death to the soul, death to the body, 
death to the peaceful relationship we had with God. And everyone at war with God through sin must pay that penalty of death. Or have someone pay it for them. Or have a substitute. And this, of course, is part of the great glory that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. He willingly sacrificed himself to pay for the guilt of the sinful, separated people. This is the story of a good man dying for bad men. And he paid the debt of death. His shed blood established a covenant that forgives sins so that men may know peace with God. And so their war with him and their war with each other is over. As Isaiah 2 says, these chosen ones, these loved ones, these who are a part of the covenant, they will not learn war anymore. As a body of Christ, we are learning peace. No, we're not there yet. But we're learning peace. He does not teach us war or separation from himself and each other. Or as Isaiah 40 and verse 2 joyfully declares, Speak tenderly to, to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. In a prophecy in Ezekiel 37, the covenant is called a covenant of peace. Here, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. In prophecy and in this verse 20 here in Hebrews 13, the new covenant and its benefits are declared to be eternal. They never lose their power they are of an infinite worth and they meet every sinner's every need. In other words, the peace it produces will never fade. It will never revert to war. So brothers and sisters, if you have peace with God, it's permanent. <laughs> it's certain. It's sure. Or to put it another way that we studied recently from this chapter... Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? That God the Father approved of his son's sacrifice is seen in the first phrase that's supporting this idea of the God of peace. When it says, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. If the just sentence on sin is death, and if Jesus bore the sins of his people, then why didn't he stay dead? Because he not only paid the penalty of death and hell for them by his infinite worth as the God-man, but also because he lived a perfect life, complete in every way. And so it was not just for Jesus to stay in the grave. Justice demanded that he live again. And so his righteous father raised him from the dead, brought him, led him from the dead. This is proof that his sacrifice and his covenant are accepted by God. And we can actually experience 
peace with God. It's not merely theoretical. We can actually know it, live it, experience it, have it through Jesus Christ. Now the third phrase, which is the middle one in verse 20, informs us that God the Father did not only send his son to die that we might have our sins forgiven, but that we might also be carefully kept all the way to heaven. Jesus, who was Christ and Lord, according to these verses, was also, is also, the great shepherd of the sheep. His care and oversight of us after his resurrection continues. He didn't die for us, only to ascend and be seated in the throne and then forget about us. No, he was raised to be our guide, our protector, our nurturer, our great shepherd. And he constantly watches over his flock. Jesus, our great shepherd, was sent by the Father to mediate peace for us and to us. Oh, what comfort this should be to our hearts. Now you might ask, well, if Jesus is the great shepherd, who's the lesser shepherd? Now it's, it's not obvious, unless you've got Isaiah memorized. It's not obvious here who the lesser shepherd is. But our author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew his Bible really, really well. And verse 20 contains to us a hidden, but a very real reference to Isaiah 63, 11 to 14. You'll remember it was originally done in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek. We call that version the Septuagint. And that's the version that's always quoted in the book of Hebrews. So we're actually comparing some Greek Old Testament verses with this verse. And the three main verbs are the same, the three words that describe him. So, so what the author is trying to get us to do is once again, like he did so often beginning in the book, he's trying to get us to compare Christ with Moses. Because in those verses in Isaiah 63, Moses is described as a shepherd of the flock Israel, who brought them out of the sea, there's that word, who led them, there's that word, through the depths to receive rest. So the deliverance by Moses, of course, was the great Old Testament picture of salvation. But Jesus Christ exceeds Moses and fulfills the pattern of Moses as a savior in every way and forever. Jesus is not merely a shepherd. He's the great shepherd. He led his people out of death in his union with them and he continues to represent and guide them all the way to full salvation. Moses mediated physical life to Israel. They experienced a physical salvation. But Jesus mediates eternal life and peace. And as we're about to see, holiness to the new Israel. Jesus is the great shepherd of our souls. Now all of this is why God the Father is called the God of peace in verse 20. Because he gives peace through the gospel work of his son Jesus. So let's look now next at the blessing. 
Notice the specific blessing asked for. And I'm going to shorten these two verses down to just the core. May the God of peace equip you. That's it. It's a prayer to be equipped. May the God of peace equip you with everything good. Now this word translated in my version, equip, has a very broad range of meaning. And that means it's sometimes hard to know in a specific uh, verse or context what the specific point is. But here I think it's, it's better translated, uh, make you complete. The verse would read this way, may the God of peace make you complete with everything good. In other words, he's praying that God will further add to these grace, gracious saints more grace. In fact, every grace, whatever is deficient or defective in them, he wants God to build them up, to equip them, to fulfill, to complete them. So his wish is for God to supply them with every spiritually good thing so that they will do God's will. Whatever they are missing, he prays that God will grant to them so that they will obey God. In other words, he's praying for their sanctification. He's praying for God to so work in them that they will live a life of obedience, of pleasure to God. Yes, they have a degree of sanctification, but he's asking that God would work in them further holiness, something more than they presently have. And this is confirmed in the next phrase of verse 21, which is really just a parallel phrase. It's saying the same thing with slightly different language. He says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Working in you parallels equip you. That which is pleasing in his sight parallels God's will. That, of course, is his law, his rule of love. He wants that to make up their actions. And for this to be accomplished, our author knows that God must work. He is calling upon Christians to be obedient. Yes, he is. That's what verse 21 is about. That's his goal for them. But he knows that God must equip. God must complete. God must work if those believers are going to make any real progress in pleasing him. And this, of course, is the classic balance between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility that's found all throughout the scriptures. Men must pursue God's will. They must do the law of God. They must be righteous. And they are responsible, every last one of them, to live in a way that's pleasing to God. But if frail, still sinful men are ever going to succeed at this, God must first work. He must exert spiritual power in men's souls. Or they will be what, going back to that Ezekiel passage said, will just be a bunch of dry bones. In other words, dead. We'll still be dead. Equipping and working is God's ability. Responding with obedience 
is our responsibility. God initiates life in our souls and we respond. That's the biblical way in every step of our salvation. There are so many verses I could quote here, but let me give you just a few that I know you know well, and, and therefore I hope it further convinces you of this point if you, need, if you need to be. Why do you love God? Pastor, it's because he first loved me. That's right, 1 John 4, 6. We love God because he first loved us. Who's the initiator? God. What's our duty? To respond to him in love, to return the love he showed on us. Is every man required to love God? Well, of course they are. But who can do it? Only those who God works in first. Right? He loves us, so we love him. Or Psalm 110.3. I have to believe that the writer of the Hebrews who loved Psalm 110 um, would fully approve of this illustration. It tells us that God's people will offer themselves freely on the day of his power in holy garments. What a beautiful picture. We are to dress ourselves in the robes of righteousness. Who works in us so that we can do that? God. He must work first. And when he does, we will respond in faith and obedience and we will weave robes of righteousness. Oh, pastor, the only robe I, ha I want to have on is the robe of Jesus' righteousness. Well, okay, I think your motive's good, but you need to read the book of Revelation where the robes are only listed twice. And one, of the, one, times the robe, one time the robe is described as the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the other time is described as the works of righteousness in the saints. Your good works, as imperfect as they are in this life, your obedience, as imperfect as it is in this life, is perfected by the mediating Christ. And God looks on you, not only on your record as perfect in Christ, he looks upon you in your person as obedient in Christ. That's amazing. That's amazing. But it's all empowered by the initiating grace of God. There are other scriptures that teach a similar doctrine. Perhaps the most famous one is Philippians 2, 12, and 13, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there's our responsibility, right? There's a command. Work out your own salvation. But why should we try to do this? I mean, what hope? Why bother? I mean, if we're dead, how can we? Well, after being born again, we aren't dead. We're alive to God, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and our souls live to God, and we can actually obey him. But even there, we should, even then, we should work out our, our salvation. Why? Because it is God who works in you. Oh, but I'm not willing. To will, oh, but then I can't do it. Oh, and to work for his good pleasure. Whatever you need, Christian, God supplies. He does. He initiates. He initiates life in our souls and we respond. That's the biblical way. We love him, yes, because he first loved us. Yes, we offer ourselves freely in the day of his power because he empowered us. And yes, 
we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because he works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. Romans 16.20 promises the same result as our text with a little different picture. The God of peace, there he is. Now listen to how warlike this God of peace is. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Man, if that's not a parallel passage, I don't know what one is. God the Father is in the process of destroying the works of the devil in our lives through the grace that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even more plainly parallel is 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's peace, which comes to us through Christ, extends beyond just our record to our very souls. God declares peace, we might say in our justification in verse 20, but he works peace in us in sanctification in verse 21. And both of these things, peace outside of us and peace inside of us, are due to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ in the New Covenant. You can't tell it from your English version probably, but what there is is a statement, the, the supporting phrases, and then the name of Jesus is kept to the end. In, in my version, the ESV, the Lord Jesus is, is stuck in the middle of the verse. Actually, in the original, it's at the very end. It's almost like there's a tension. Well, who is it? How does this? Who? Who's the? Oh, it's the Lord Jesus. And then he does the same thing in verse 21. He says all this stuff happens, and he ends it with through Jesus Christ. It's a way of, of uh, he's actually done it throughout the book. It's a way of almost bringing emphasis to Jesus by not naming him until it's almost too late, until it's the end. Let's now look very quickly at the doxology and the affirmation. The doxology. Certainly this theology should lead to doxology. Right? Truth should lead to praise. The glorious doctrines of the initiating grace of God in Christ should cause us to worship him. So these wonderful doctrines must be learned, they must be loved, they must be put into practice, but they should also cause us to praise God. Now, who should be praised? I mean, who is praised here? To whom be glory forever and ever? Who is that referring to? Well, now most of us, again, in the English Bible, would take the phrase to point to Christ because his is the name that's immediately before it. But actually the referent is to the Father at the beginning of verse 20. Again, you can't tell that in English, but that's what it is in the Greek. Now this matches other scriptures like Philippians 2.11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. There it is, right? It was the Son's mission to glorify his Father, but it's also true that God in all of his persons is to be praised for this work. God the Father planned this grace, 
the Son earned this grace, and the Holy Spirit, although not mentioned here directly, is portrayed in the New Testament as the one who applies this grace to us. He is the one who does the work of equipping and completing our souls. And so, since it is all their work, God the Trinity should be glorified. Finally, the affirmation. The benediction and the doxology, the blessing and the praise, are affirmed with an amen. They are seconded. He wrote it, and then he basically said, yeah, that thing again. Ditto. Amen. The amen means we not only desire these things, it means not only do we agree with God that we need these things, but we are also declaring our faith that we believe he will do these things. <sighs> do you believe in Jesus Christ? Good, good. But do you also practice daily the belief that your sins are actually forgiven? And that God is at work in you through Christ to perfect you? Or if I ask you to describe the process of sanctification in your life, would you just say, I'm just a complete failure all the time? <coughs> if you're a real Christian, these verses are true of you. And you need to start seeing yourself differently. And that will not only bring proper praise to God, it will be part of what empowers you to please God <laughs> and do his will. Are you hopeless, not believing God is at work like these verses say? Or do you trust that God in Christ is actively at work in advancing you in holiness? I mean, can you say amen to his work in your life? That's really what this amen is sitting here for. That's the application. Well, three very quick uses. First, notice clearly from our text that one of God's great goals for you, Christian, is your holiness, is your perfection even. His goal for you is not to be rich in this life, necessarily, or famous, or powerful, and on the list could go. His goal for you in this life is for you to be pleasing to him, for you to do his will. Amen. And of course in God's wonderful way, whenever we follow him and give up our own life and we find out, we will find out in the next life that we will be rich beyond our imagination. We'll be famous for grace by the work of Jesus Christ. <laughs> we'll be kings. How powerful is that? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our aim to please God. That's our goal in life, is to please God. So my question is, is it your aim to please Him? Is your goal in life to do God's will? You see, I have to ask, not because obedience saves you, it doesn't, but obedience is a characteristic of the people of God. 
They have this desire and they actually perform it. They please God. They do the will of God. Yes, imperfectly. Yes. But sincerely and really. If it's not your aim to please God, if your aim in life is to please yourself, I promise you, on the basis of the word of God, you are not a Christian. You're not. You do not have peace with God. And you desperately need to gain the benefits of the work of Christ for yourself through faith in him so that your war with God will end. It's a battle you cannot win. You are not stronger than God. You cannot outlast him. There is no excuse for your sins against his goodness. And in the final day, when you stand in judgment under him, you will be eternally lost. Unless you believe in this great shepherd of the sheep. If you place your trust in him, that in him and him alone, your sins are removed. That's the only way it can happen. And peace can be made with God. A second use. Let's be reminded that sanctification is initiated and empowered by God. But it also involves our will and our work. If you let go and let God, you will not progress in sanctification. And you will be disobeying the Bible. Yes, you are supposed to yield. But you're supposed to do so much more than yield. There's a long-standing argument. Is sanctification monergistic? That is, is it only the power of God in us? Or is it synergistic? Is it the work of God and the work of men? Well, I'm not sure either of those terms is, is actually a good one to use in the realm of sanctification. But we do have to say that God's leadership, his initiating work, is in sanctification, just like it's in all of our salvation, every element or aspect of our salvation. And there's great comfort in that, because since God is leading in this, we can be assured that it will actually be completed. If left to ourselves, we all, we all know we would fall short. Well, thirdly and finally and very quickly, so let us, because of these truths, let us be a thankful, praising, and believing people. Because all of that glorifies God. Let's pray.